Welcome to Iris Radio, an informative exploration of cutting-edge technology in the neurocritical care space. And now, here's your host, John Unser. Welcome to today's podcast. On the show today, we are talking with Dr. Kurt Yeager about his recent publication entitled Patterns of Healthcare Costs to External Ventricular Drain Infections. Currently, Dr. Yeager is a resident physician of neurosurgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. His research interests include cost-effective healthcare, cerebrovascular neurosurgery, and medical device assessment. Additionally, some other clinical interests include brain-computer interface, AI in healthcare, blockchain in healthcare, and medical device development. Moreover, Dr. Yeager is a co-founder of Medescribe, an AI-enhanced platform to enhance data integration for medical providers, improving clinical workflow, and allowing clinicians to focus on patients rather than clerical tasks. Dr. Yeager, welcome to the show today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Before we start asking you about the paper, I know you're right on the COVID-19 front lines there in New York. I was wondering if you could take a few minutes uh, to share what that experience has been for you and your colleagues in general in New York, but then also within your hospital. Yeah, sure thing. So as you can imagine, life has changed pretty drastically here in New York on a lot of different levels. You know, starting uh, professionally in terms of the hospital itself, as a neurosurgery resident, a lot of our volume is based on elective surgeries, and that's all been stopped for now uh, and put on hold and only doing uh, we're only really doing the most emergent cases in our uh, that present to the hospitals. So that includes strokes, which we've actually seen a lot of, and that's a you know a topic we can we can get to on on another um, another time. But we've been seeing a lot of strokes for thrombectomy. So in actuality, you know our job, the day-to-day job, is pretty light in terms of elective surgeries, but needing to be on call for things like um, for stroke and thrombectomy for stroke has been uh, has been an added um, definitely an added burden to our schedule. The other thing is for uh, for trauma, we've seen trauma shut down a little bit as well, uh, just because no one's out and about in the city. Our trauma volume has somewhat dropped a little bit, and that's kind of been reflective uh, in all institutions in New York. So, um, in terms of our hospital, we've been seeing uh, a lot of patients with the coronavirus. Um, I think that we've been seeing on average throughout our health system in Mount Sinai, we've seen about 400 patients uh, or we care for about 400 patients each day in our intensive care units. Um, and that's in addition to about a thousand or so other inpatients, more than a thousand other inpatients who are, uh, who are not intensively cared for, um, but, uh, but are still admitted to the hospital for a variety of reasons. So, as you can imagine, the volume of those patients has really uh, has dramatically increased. And finally, we're starting to see the light. We're starting to see that the volume, uh, the daily volume of people being admitted to the hospital with coronavirus is starting to slow down a little bit. Um, the, the length of stay for these patients is actually quite long, especially in the intensive care unit. So we do see a little bit of a lag in terms of our, our total volume, um, but we are seeing new admissions slowly decreasing. So that's definitely good. The, um, we're now starting within our department, we're starting to talk about starting slowly elective cases again and starting again with the very uh, high risk procedures to start patients who really can't wait a lot of time. Uh, we're still reserving more elective surgeries like spine operations. We're trying to triage these cases because uh, while the volume is starting to decrease in terms of coronavirus, 
like I said before, the lag is, is pretty significant and, and it, they do take a lot of resources. Uh, like for example, our intensive care unit at our main Mount Sinai hospital has still been entirely converted to a coronavirus ICU uh, where all these patients are uh, intubated and will be there for at least a week, if not more. Uh, so those patients are taking up uh, the ICU beds for our other elective neurosurgery patients who, uh, who otherwise would need an ICU bed. So unfortunately, we can't do a lot of those cases collectively. Fortunately, uh, like I said before, it seems like we're turning a corner a little bit and we're hoping to start elective surgeries again soon. We're hoping to, uh, again, see kind of a, re, um, a renormalization of our, of our processes. Um, in terms of general life here, as you can imagine, uh, everyone being in quarantine, uh, healthcare workers are considered essential personnel, so we are able to get to and from work, and uh, public transportation is open. And uh, but other than that, it's, the city is pretty much locked down, and there's not a lot of life. Uh, the only piece of life that we see is that around seven o'clock every day, the, the healthcare uh, or the essential workers are applauded for um, throughout the city. People are are opening their windows and yelling and cheering throughout the city. So that's a very nice gesture to see. So, um, as I mentioned before, our, um, our intensive care unit at the, our neurosurgical intensive care unit at the Mount Sinai Hospital has been somewhat converted to a coronavirus ICU, and that includes taking our intensive care, uh, our critical care uh, faculty to convert them to care primarily for coronavirus patients. So, what that has done is left a void in terms of taking care of the neurocritical care patients. So, the neurosurgeons who are typically just doing uh, the surgery are now in the ICU managing these patients uh, day by day, hour by hour. So that has been a, a major change uh, to, to the neurosurgery schedule. Rather than doing the surgeries, they're actually performing the critical care uh, and, and relearning a lot of basic skills that we learned in medical school but have forgotten uh, over time. That's been a very interesting uh, change in, in, the, in the pathway here. Uh, we've had to relearn a lot of information, a lot of critical information. And I think ultimately it will make us better clinicians in the end because we have had this experience in terms of, uh, in terms of relearning how to care for really sick patients, not just neurosurgery, but also uh, neurology, epilepsy patients, people we don't see all the time or we don't take care of all the time. We're now being forced to, uh, to care for these patients with the absence of our critical care colleagues very interesting. Well, we really do appreciate everything that you're doing for your community and your selfless sacrifice to ensure people are receiving the medical attention that they desperately need during these difficult times. So thank you for that. Of course. Yeah, of course. So now back to the paper. I was wondering if you could provide us a bit of a background of the study and what was the impetus for conducting it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I first set out to look at this topic, we were really interested in, in trending the infection rates uh, with ventriculostomies over time and seeing how they changed. Before I started my residency back in 2015, uh, the department had, uh, had put in place several changes, including standardized dressings and uh, standardized critical care packs uh, to try to help with the infection rate. And, uh, and my goal at the time was to really study the impact of that. And, and also more than that, to see how much it costs and really drivers of that, I think there are a lot of hidden, uh, hidden factors in terms of the cost of someone with either a subarachnoid hemorrhage or a similar type of spontaneous neurosurgical hemorrhage. It's really important to, uh, to really understand what's going into the cost of those healthcare stays so we can target those 
uh, with certain interventions to try to make it uh, to try to make it better, more cost effective for uh, the general uh, the general uh, society to, to help pay for those. Uh, one of my observations during my junior residency was seeing how much of a human cost that the infections of ventricular drains really put on patients and and how it set them back clinically. But what I observed also is just the enormous amount of cost that would go into these infections as well. And so identifying how much it costs and try to put a number on it to try to bring attention to the importance of preventing these infections was really my main goal of this paper. And so with that, what was the end result? Kind of what was the percentage of infection and what was really the cost associated with that infection? So we looked at uh, EVD placements at our institution over five years between 2010 and 2016. And the overall infection rate in our cohort was 9.9% which is about on average with the, the standard rate of infection for ventricular drains across the country. We really, we noted that in the patients who had infections of EVDs, the, the length of stay for, in the ICU was pretty significant, pretty substantial uh, compared to patients who had EVDs who did not get infected. And the infection rate, time cost of infection was about an added half of a month. It went from 13 days to 30 day length of stay in the ICU. The cost of the, uh, the length of stay for patients with infected ventricular drains was $168,000. And that compares to patients who did not have an infected ventricular drain of $83,000. Now there's a significant difference between the two groups. So it was about an $80,000 increase in patient care if the patient had an infection. Uh, Yeah, that's correct. And what was driving that cost? Was it mainly just the length of stay or was it those other sunk costs that you were talking about earlier? It was a, it was a combination, certainly. Um, it takes into account the extended stay in the ICU, which is definitely one major factor. I think uh, the indirect costs as well um, also play a major role. And also the, uh, just the morbidity associated with the, uh, number one, the increased length of stay, but also with the infection itself. You know, that those patients who have an EVD infection are generally set back significantly. And that, and we did not take into account uh, the overall impacts long-term of these patients and the overall long-term costs of, for example, the morbidity associated with infected EVD and someone who has ventriculitis long-term, are they able to, to go back and contribute to society in a meaningful way um, where people who did not have an infection may have been able to contribute uh, back to society a little bit sooner. So we did not, in fact, look at those costs, but I imagine that would be even more. So with this, what conclusions do you think we should ascertain from the results of this study? Is it something where we know that infection costs are increased and we want to prevent them, so we should focus our attention on devices or certain procedural techniques or something to decrease that infection rate, or is it something else that you guys are, are thinking of? Yeah, we, we've taken a lot of conclusions from this, uh, both from our own institutional experience and, and hopefully being able to educate others. Uh, my main push moving forward has been preventing ventriculostomy infections. And I think that comes with a, a variety of, uh, of meanings to me. Uh, number one was standardizing the EVD procedure. Before then, we had uh, a lot of residents placing these ventricular drains with a whole uh, host of of ways to do it in different uh, techniques, different sterilization, different antibiotics. And standardizing that to me has been, uh, has been an important to move uh, the 
the progress forward. The other thing is looking at the devices, and there are certain devices that are antibiotic, certain EVDs that are antibiotic impregnated, which certainly has evidence behind it. There's obviously the ERAS device, which has the ability to clear blood from the ventricles and also potentially other things like infection or innovations in ventricular drains is critical, and uh, that will be able to help prevent uh, infections moving forward. And I think that's really the key. Treating an infection once it's occurred is, is too late, and that's already uh, going to lead to a higher cost, higher length of stay, and overall increased morbidity in patients. And it's going to be preventing those, um, which will be the key. Well, Dr. Thurgeager, this is certainly an intriguing study and topic, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with us today, not only about the study, but your experience that you're facing with in, in New York, and you have our deepest gratitude for being there in the front lines and ensuring people receive that medical attention that they desperately need. So, so thank you for being on the show today, and thank you for all that you're doing. Well, thank you guys very much for having me, and I really want to thank you guys as well for being part of the get through their neurosurgical conditions. And we as clinicians don't often get to say thank you for that, but, but we do appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Eris Radio. Make sure you visit our website at eris.com where you can subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.